Great question. The Manufacturing Podcast offers news and information for the people who make, store, and move things, and those who manage and maintain the facilities where that work gets done. episode of Talking EHS, which is now part of the Great Question podcast series produced by Endeavor Business Media's Manufacturing Group. Here's where you'll get updates and conversations concerning the latest news and developments in workplace safety. I'm Dave Blanchard, Editor-in-Chief of EHS Today. Joining me today are Nicole Stempak, Managing Editor, and Adrian Selko, Senior Editor. So welcome to you, Nicole and Adrian. Since this is our first podcast of 2024, it's only natural to take a look at some recent developments in occupational health and safety and what those developments might foretell for the weeks and the months to come. So let's get started. First of all, as happens every year at this time, OSHA has increased the civil penalty amounts, which actually they're required to do by law. These are referred to as cost of living adjustments, but whatever you want to call them, they're going to be more expensive. These fines and penalties, they're going to be more expensive in 2024. These increases went into effect on January the 16th. So OSHA's maximum penalties for serious and other than serious violations will increase from 15,625 per violation that was last year In 2024, it's now going to be $16,131 per violation. The maximum penalty for willful or repeated violations will increase from $156,259 per violation to $161,323 per violation. Now, also keep this in mind, all states that have their own occupational safety and health agencies are also required to adopt maximum penalty levels at the same level, if not higher, as federal OSHA. So if your company or organization is located in one of those states, you can expect to see those increases as well. Now, OSHA, of course, is an agency within the U.S. Department of Labor. And the Department of Labor recently announced a new rule that has met with more than the usual amount of controversy. So on January 9th, the Department of Labor announced its independent contractor rule. Some people are saying that this is a long overdue correction to the job status for workers who basically work for a single company, but they're considered as independent contractors, which means no health care benefits, no 401k, no overtime, things that regular employees get. So the DOL says that's not right. And the new rule will provide guidance on how to properly classify these types of workers so they can get minimum wage and overtime pay, among other things. Now, as you would expect, there are a lot of stipulations and conditions and exceptions as to who qualifies and doesn't qualify as an independent contractor. The rule, as the Department of Labor describes it, provides guidance on proper classification and seeks to combat employee misclassification. So the DOL says that misclassification can lead to things like wage theft, which allows some employers to undercut their competition on salaries. 
So Julie Sue, the acting secretary of labor, says that misclassifying employees as independent contractors is a serious issue that deprives workers of basic rights and protections. This new rule will help protect workers, especially those facing the greatest risk of exploitation by making sure that they're classified properly and that they receive the wages that they've earned. So that's how the Department of Labor, which is part of the Biden administration, sees it. But not everybody agrees, of course. For instance, Chris Spear, the CEO of the American Trucking Associations, representing the big trucking companies, he issued this following statement. I can think of nothing more un-American than for the government to extinguish the freedom of individuals to choose work arrangements that suit their needs and fulfill their ambitions. More than 350,000 truckers choose to work as independent contractors because of the economic opportunity it creates and the flexibility it provides, enabling them to run their own business and choose their own hours and routes. That freedom of choice has been an enormous source of empowerment for women, minorities, and immigrants pursuing the American dream. That was Chris Spear from the American Trucking Associations. Also, Johnny Casey, president and CEO of the Intermodal Association of North America, adds that the Department of Labor's final rule would eliminate a worker's ability to determine their own preferred career path, instead forcing them to either become an employee or leave their chosen profession in which they have already heavily invested in things such as significant safety training. In any event, the rule is scheduled to take effect on March 11th, and you can be sure that it will come up a lot this year, given that this is an election year. One other note, this is another OSHA note. While it may seem like 2024 has just gotten underway, it is that time of year when employers that meet certain size and industry criteria need to provide their 2023 injury and illness data to OSHA. So the deadline for that is March 2nd. And one more reminder, this again from OSHA, employers must post their 2023 summary of work-related injuries and illnesses as Form 300A in their workplace from February 1st through April 30th in a location where their employees can see it. Let me now turn it over to Nicole for her observations on what's happening in the world of occupational health and safety. Nicole? Thank you, Dave. Um, so OSHA did something that I think internally we didn't think too much of, um, but has really triggered um, or prompted a response from the broader safety community. And that was um, in mid-December, OSHA announced that for its inspectors on sites, that they would be swapping out the traditional hard, cat, hard hat with um, modern safety helmets, um, also known as a switch from a type one to a type two hat. And um, these have been around for, both have been around for a while. Obviously, the traditional hard hat has been around for a lot longer. Um, but there's been a lot of development in the head protection space lately um, to understand that the switch from the traditional safety hat 
um, to the safety helmet is a reflection of what we now know about falls and head injuries. And that is that hard hats only protect the head from certain types of injuries. And that is the top of the head from falling objects. But fall protection and falls themselves are such a problem. Um, It consistently falls for the past 13 years in a row actually is the number one safety violation um, or safety OSHA violation. And they also have some other categories that are adjacent to falls in that top 10 violations list that we publish um, every year on what OSHA has also published every year. Um, And, you know, just highlighting the enormity of the problem. And we also understand that most head injuries occur from falls of six feet or lower. So it's not as though these people are on scaffolds, on skyscrapers, at very great heights. This is the equivalent of of a standard, um, you know, a standard ladder, or I should say the average height of, you know, uh, a man, which isn't that high when you think about it, um, to fall from and to get injured. So OSHA made this announcement that it was switching its hard hats to safety helmets for its workers, and it prompted a lot of conversations from the safety community about OSHA's decision and about what it could mean for the in- the industry of safety professionals as a whole. Um, you know, there's some doubt as to whether or not it actually will work. And of course, PPE only works if it's worn and it's worn correctly. But I think it reflects a better understanding of brain injuries and the way that the brain can get injured and needs protection. Um, And that, you know, one slip, one trip, one fall can forever change a person's life, um, assuming they are able to survive that. So it, it also prompts the, the discussion that whenever OSHA the government or government agency makes a change, what will it mean for everyone else, right? So in November, OSHA published a bulletin talking about the differences between traditional hard hats and modern safety helmets. And it's not a far leap for um, some people to wonder whether or not this is going to be coming down the pike. But at the end of the day, the the greater discussion that I've seen and heard and listened to from the safety community is why not try to do as much as you can? Why not try to use all the tools, the latest tools available to try and protect workers? Although there are obstacles, as with anything, getting buy-in from management to purchase these um, safety helmets, which given their, you know, different design and different features does add increased cost, um, as well as from the workers themselves to try to wear it. So obviously any change comes with difficulties and potential pushback, um, but at least for OSHA, it has announced that it is trying to do a better job of keeping its workers safe. And 
when you put it that way, it doesn't seem too controversial at all. So we'll see what happens in 2024 if OSHA makes any announcements that suggest that so goes OSHA, so goes the rest of the nation or the industry, I guess you could say. Um, but many companies have already reported that they have made the switch, are making the switch to these more modern safety protection um, equipment. And I'm just curious to see to see if that does come to light. I, I had a very slight concussion once, and I can't tell you how awful it made me feel for weeks on end. And uh, I would do anything that I could to prevent that from happening again. And, you know, I'm not traditionally on ladders or at height, you know, greater than my own two feet on the ground. Um, so I, I hope that any change can lead to better worker safety because, gosh, it sure would be nice in 2024 for, um, for fall protection from being the number one OSHA violation and, you know, just off the list entirely. Um, so, and now I will turn it over to Adrienne to share her perspective on what's going on in the world of mental health. Thank you very much, Nicole. During the pandemic, mental health issues moved front and center, and that is continuing today. In a 2023 report from Mental Health America, 81% of workers reported that workplace stress affected their mental health. And to put a dollar figure on this, the Center for Prevention and Health Services said that untreated mental health concerns results in substantial costs, $60,000 annually for one organization and $105 billion nationwide. Looking at some of the components of the untreated mental health issues, a Gallup poll found that low morale costs American businesses up to $550 billion a year due to lost productivity, absenteeism, illness, and other problems resulting from employees being burnt out at work. All of this is not lost on companies that every safety professional I have spoken with over the past three years understand the problem and are working on solutions. Across the country, some of these programs have even achieved what we'll call world-class status. And I'll just provide one example here. Johnson & Johnson has a Healthy Mind program, which is part of its overall wellness program. The mental health component of this program teaches both the employees and their families about this importance of mental well-being. One way they do this is they conduct regular mental health reviews. Also, managers conduct workplace analysis risks in order to understand where their workforce is regarding their mental health. Both managers and employees are trained to be aware of the issues, as well as steps to help mitigate the problems. And some of the way Johnson & Johnson is addressing the issue is to create programs dealing with stress management, resiliency, and work-life balance. Even with this focus on mental health and a lot of these companies working towards it, looking for signs of mental health in your workforce isn't always easy. 
So a recent article in HR Digest provided a list of signs that indicate that your employees are struggling. And these signs are really just a way to open the door to a conversation with employees on how to help. So here are the signs. Frequent tardiness and inability to keep up with work deadlines. Constant tiredness and apparent exhaustion or frequent illnesses. Inconsistent moods and frequent fluctuations. Sudden change in personality traits, which can include withdrawing from projects and activities. Extreme nervousness and being on the edge. Difficulty concentrating, keeping up with instructions or completing tasks. Frequent conflicts with team members. Decline in a quality of work that isn't solved by changing work parameters. Increased sensitivity as compared to their previous demeanor. And a decline of interest in initiatives. So after assessing the needs of your workforce, here are some overall actions that companies can take. The first one we're calling listen to employees about their mental health needs. And this was interesting because this was from a survey called the business case for focusing on employee mental health. And the survey analyzed over a million Twitter posts from employees who were discussing mental health and wellness in the workplace. And this time period was January to October 22nd. What the analysis showed that many employees were very honest in how they posted on Twitter, of course now it's X, about what they believed organizations did well and where they fell short when it comes to mental health. So here's a perfect source for companies to be able to listen to what their employees' concerns are and ways to address that and to understand better is through research, focus groups, surveys, or other types of analysis. Another thing that came up on the survey was to provide a mental health day and to include this as a benefit. So it is a day off that everybody understands it is specifically geared toward mental health and burnout prevention. Uh, this was mentioned a lot on social media. Another area that the employees mentioned were employee resource groups, some places ERG, and that is an effective way for companies to support employee mental health. These are groups that are created around similarities within the workforce. For example, a lot of companies have one for veterans or for women or for um, other categories that you could put together in the workplace. Um, what it does is create a trusted community for peers to share with one another how they feel and what they feel the organization could do better. So we will continue to cover mental health uh, this year. Um, I feel the companies are paying very close attention to this, and I think they will come up with innovative programs to help employees become healthier, um, become mentally healthier. And with that, back to Dave. Thank you, Adrian, and thank you, Nicole, both, both of you for those fantastic insights into uh, some of the issues that safety professionals are dealing with today. So we kind of are ran the gamut here today of uh, regulatory compliance issues, personal protective equipment, mental health awareness, and what can a safety professional do about all of those things. That's kind of what EHS Today is all about. That's what this Talking EHS podcast is all about.
And that will wrap it up for this installment of Talking EHS, which is part of the Great Question podcast series. If you've liked what you've heard today, we encourage you to subscribe to The Great Question wherever you get your podcasts. So for Nicole Stempak and Adrian Selko, I'm Dave Blanchard. See you next time. Thank you.